Hey, hey, welcome to Why Are We Whispering with me, Jenny Gay, author, stepmom, and all-around truth seeker and teller. If you're tuning in, you too are tired of sugar-coated content and conversations. This is the place where I put a megaphone to the mouths of adults, talking about life experiences that most of us find too shameful, too uncomfortable, too traumatic, and too embarrassing to discuss openly. We dive headfirst into experiences, thoughts, and behaviors that we keep secret or hush-hush, never truly speaking honestly and openly about them, but that most of us have in common. And I'm talking about it because life can be hard, it can be ugly, and it can be painful. And guess what? It's like that for all of us. So let's stop whispering. Hi, everyone. Thank you for clicking the listen button today and tuning into this episode of Why Are We Whispering? Approximately 6,000 people commit suicide each year in the UK. That's approximately 115 people dying of suicide each week. Whilst women are more likely to attempt suicide or be diagnosed with a mental health condition, 74% of all suicides in the UK are men. The rate of suicides in men is over three times higher than women in the UK and is the second biggest cause of death in young men. These are some shocking and heartbreaking statistics, or reality, I should say, uh, affecting our sons, our brothers, our husbands, our boyfriends, our dads. I want to talk about men's suicide today because these statistics are not decreasing. It is a pressing reality and we are losing our male counterparts at a rate of knots because we are not talking about their mental health. And when we do lose a loved one to suicide, many continue to stay silent as we carry shame and guilt around our potential or perceived role in them committing suicide. And so in order for change, we must talk about the realities surrounding men's health, mental health, I should say, and suicide, and we should say it out loud without whispering. Joining me today is Tess. I met Tess very recently through a new friend, and he's actually also a former guest on my podcast, Justin Eagleton. So thank you, Justin. (laughs) Even though Tess and I have very different uh, backgrounds and very different upbringings, her being raised in Hungary and me being raised in Canada, we clicked instantly. Tess is a health coach and an athlete. Uh, She has her own business called Better Than Fit. She's won countless fitness and powerlifting competitions, both here in the UK and also qualifier in the world's. And health and fitness is at the core of who she is. But surrounding that, Tess has experienced deep loss. She's lost several men in her life to suicide, her father being one of them. Tess is channeling her grief and her experience into something positive, combining it also with her passion for health and fitness. She's launched recently Men Talk 312, which aims to raise awareness for men's suicide and mental health in honor of her father. Tess is here to share her story. I'm so honored that she's um, agreed to share her her story and uh, her story and her experience around suicide and grief um, on the podcast. Um, and I want to welcome and thank you so much for being so brave and open to talk to us today. And I, I truly believe that your story and and what you have to share with our listeners today will hopefully spark some conversations and get more people talking and get us one step closer to bridging this gap. So thank you so much, Tess. Hi, Jenny. Yes, thank you so much for the opportunity and the invite. I think it's a good place to start, Tess. Well, first, I want to say how sorry I am that you lost your your dad, um, especially in, in such a way. 
Can you, can you talk to us and, and bring us back to the moment that you found out that your father had passed? Yes. So this year it will be 25 years ago on the 1st of June. And uh, that was a summer time for me. I was uh, 19. I was I wasn't actually home. Uh, I was uh, the opposite side of the country uh, mm. where I was studying and getting ready for my exams um, as a as a fitness instructor. And I received uh, a call from my mum, uh, and I thought January is just a call just to see how am I. It was on a landline as well. We didn't have mobile phones then back then. And uh, I just heard something in her voice, and basically she she told me that uh, we lost my father. And uh, the first thing I asked, what happened, how? And um, she told me that she's suicide. And all I just remember that I collapsed on the throne, uh, on the on the on the floor, and crying, and just tried to get over the shock and processing actually what she just said. And so then from on, it took me 11 years to actually talk about it without any tears or flare up tears. So, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, uh, grief often, it, 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 it comes with a, a spectrum of emotions, um, you know, almost like a moving scale of feelings and, and emotions and how you feel one minute is going to be different to the next. And as you said, you just, you, you didn't, I guess you're process. You're still probably processing to this day, but um, the emotional response only changed after years and years and years of processing. So, also say I feel like there's probably um, you know two prongs to that scale of emotions, and one being the fact that your father has indeed died, and um, processing the fact that you're never going to see him again, but the way in which he he died as well. So the second prong to that is is processing the suicide. Um, and the feelings that a, a, one would have associated with that. So can you talk about specifically the, the kinds of feelings that you had um, maybe throughout? Let's talk about the, the course of that 11 years that it took you to kind of work through the the emotional component of it. Yeah, sure. So it was uh, as an emotional roller coaster as every single grief in life it is. And regardless mm. how you're losing your loved ones, I think it always is. But I was very much unsettled in the idea that I didn't know why. Then it moved to the first, first of all, it was a shock for the system. So just processing the emotions and the tears and get myself into a zone that I still want to do my exams and I want to focus on it. So it's actually come really handy for me that I straight away I just went into the zone of studying and um, I only went back home for for the funeral. So that's obviously brought up for me again a different emotions in the sense where you just pointed it out, I'm never going to see him again. Mm-hmm. So that's uh, the shock went into sadness, even deeper sadness. Then the sadness went into more guilt and asking myself, why I actually haven't seen that, why I didn't do anything about it, how I did not pick up on it. Uh, because the silence could have been the biggest red flag 
but you just need to break the silence totally in the opposite way that is everything is fine um mm. so from the guilt uh, i think that's why it took me 11 11 years because i felt like it was sort of my part of my responsibility to pick up on that and i should have done something about it if i pick up in the right time and see the signs i could have prevented it happening uh and i think that's the biggest uh that's the biggest message i would probably say to everybody because it's very difficult to deal with grief a loss and the guilt as well and the fact yeah. that it's probably going back on you and if i knew it i would have been able to save him um and this is why this year is really important for me and put that passion into other people who might find their loved ones in the in the stage when they could still pull them back and pick up on that red flag you mentioned that when you first found out you kind of poured yourself into um your studies almost like distracting yourself um correct away yeah. from sitting in the uncomfortability of the grief of the sadness of the anger of the guilt um i recently actually just um watched a video of um Tyler Perry he was on Oprah and um this woman was speaking about how she lost her mom and she started crying and he said something that i found was simple but profound and i think that it will resonate with a lot of people and as in your perfect example you literally just hit the nail on the head with what he had said which was you can busy yourself with work you can busy yourself with exercise with drugs alcohol sex whatever you're going to busy yourself with to distract yourself from feeling the grief and from processing the grief but the grief will wait for you to finish it will always be waiting for you so i want to dive a little bit into that because you said it took you 11 years to speak about it without crying um and really feeling um extreme emotion around it so when did you allow yourself to feel the grief and when did you stop busying yourself um i think it's a really good question um so it was a several things the fact that i was still 19 last year of my uh teen years um that didn't help so obviously you're always going out busy 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 with friends however i did use communication as a massive tool so every single friends around me on those days and my boyfriend as well back at the day massive help for me to talk about it to show my tears so show my emotions um and yeah like you said i went through a period of okay let my hair down partying drinking uh i was smoking i was really heavy smoker actually in uh, in my uni years uh i thought this is going to solve everything but it, it it hasn't um alcohol obviously wasn't a solution either uh so then you pointed it already i after i went through um a period when exercise has become my friend as well so i did all of these including studying as well and um once my uni years are finished it was more like a calmer period so i moved back home 
Uh, I've got a job as a dietitian, um, but I wasn't really settled. But things are started to get settled, especially because I had to move back to my own home. Um, by the last time I saw my dad. Uh, and I think after the university sort of started to be quieter because all I had to think about just work. Um, then, then I decided to just came to the UK uh, because home wasn't really um, home anymore. I mean, I know it sounds a little, it sounds selfish. It does. Uh, I still got my mum and my brother back, which I love them to pieces. But for some reason, I just wanted to run away from home. And I think since I'm here, um, is 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 in the in the first two years in the UK did help me just to move away from from the place itself. Were you seeking peace? Did you no I longer think, find peace in um, at home? In a sense of on a day to day basis, or just not having memories around me. I think probably that's the the latter, and uh, not having around so much memories. It helped me just to cope better. My mum and my brother cope with it very differently. I I was always outspoken. I like to talk about it, but for some reason I didn't really get a, a grip of what is the biggest trigger for me. And I think it was always the fact that I was always blaming myself. So regardless how far away I moved from home, eventually one day this is clicked up until I'm not stopped blaming myself. And I accepted that's happened and it was a process and it was his decision. Um, I think until I, I, I always kept myself busy. And how did the people around you, um, how did they process the information or support you or not support you? Did, how did other people like boyfriends, friends, how did they behave? Was it helpful? Was it not helpful? Because mm -hmm. I think, it's always really interesting when trauma happens or um, big life changes happen and, and it's, it's um, sickness, moving, death, pregnancy, you know, all of these things. Um, it always interests me to see who sticks around and who kind of fades away into mm -hmm. the background. And oftentimes it's, I, I find it's, always, it's surprising who um, remains kind of um, in your life um, and who, who doesn't. Um, it's usually not the ones you think. So what was happening with the people around you in your inner circle? So a couple of uh, childhood friends, we are still keeping touch, not as frequently because families happens uh, for them and life is just happens, but we are still in touch. Um, yeah. I, I must admit I'm very lucky with, with friends. So I don't have many, but the ones who I have, they are quality. They're not just mate. So that's a deeper click always and a deeper connection in a sense. Sometimes you don't even need to communicate, but uh, I never had any doubt to explain or share my feelings. So they're mm. always there for me to even just, you know, give me a hug, listen to my um, uh, thoughts over and over again. Um, and communication was the biggest key. Um, despite the fact that I'm a very introvert person, I do love to communicate uh, with my closest group of friends um, how I feel. That's really wonderful that you had that because I, I, I know many people who don't. Um, mm -hmm. And 
move through grief um, by themselves or in their own minds. And that can be a very lonely place. Um, the passing of your father in combination with the way in which he took it, you know, the way in which he died and uh, committing suicide, did that spark any feelings of um, questioning your own mortality, existential crisis, any of those, any of those things? Uh, yes, uh, partially, and in a, sh- a small amount of time it has, but I think it was more of like crying out loud for help. Right. Not sure what to do or how to deal with this and just get over the shock because it is the shock for the system. Um, yeah. And just questioning everything. Uh, but yeah, it has done. However, again, um, communication and training and goal setting was always something what helped me uh but not necessarily running away from it but just uh no different if let's say somebody has got a lot of things in their mind same with my clients and some people like to do and wait doing weight training on those days because they know they have to concentrate so much on the proportion of the lift and have to stay present so therefore everything else non-existent same some people prefer running i used to run a lot and it's interesting how your mindset is changing i used to use running on those days a lot to process what actually happened and it was sort of my meditation because it's um i didn't use any headphones just listen to the nature sounds i love that because i think um i often mention when i'm when i'm talking just about parenting let's say that there's no um there's no right way to parent, but there is a wrong way to parent in my view. So in terms of grieving, um, do you think, do you, do you subscribe to that? Do you think that there's many different ways to grieve, but there is probably not a great way to grieve as well? Oh, 100%. Yes. I think probably the only one way not to grieve, uh, you probably agree with me, uh, that to shut down. That's mm. probably the worst thing to do. Anything else allow the emotions to come and go. Um, I think it's it's so important, and it, it doesn't matter in which form. You know, words, tears, anger, hitting a punch bag, yeah, wh- wh- whatever we feel like doing, screaming, walking in the rain putting your energy into something. Did you did you seek any therapy or any grief counseling or join any kind of groups um, around suicide? Yeah, so at, at eventually at some point I did do counseling for a long, long time because I still had my moments. It still came back even uh, five years ago. Mm. I, I had my moments when it break I break down um short short space of time and I realized there is still elements which I have to get talk through with a professional to fully get a grip on it and understand it and I read a lot of books as well uh, yeah. so I'm just looking up here like so many things about the untethered soul as well for example it was a great help as well that book uh, but counselling on a one-to-one basis, it was definitely something which is is tailored to you. I imagine that um, when we go back to you mentioning the obviously there's a whole gamut and a and a scale of feelings that you go through. Um, but from 
my point of view, and correct me if I wrong, if I'm wrong, I've never actually um, directly experienced uh, suicide. Um, I would imagine, and in my conversations with others, that the guilt is the emotion and the feeling that um, you carry with you the longest and runs the deepest. Um, and I think that there is a direct correlation between feelings of guilt and, and shame. And I think that that goes, that can go hand in hand um, to varying different degrees. Um, what, what, how have you processed specifically the guilt? Do you still carry it with you today? And in the processing part um, of the suicide, did you find yourself maybe not sharing it um, with the people around you because of that element of guilt and shame? No, I never felt guilt and shame not sharing it or sharing it. I, I was always willing to share it. But the first part of your question, uh, the guilt and shame, it's, I think it's, you need to understand that what happened beforehand to, and I had to understand and see it as well, how is this process is actually developed and why yeah. he actually chose and made that decision on that day. Because he clearly planned it. I don't yeah. know if he planned it to the T that it's the 1st of June as well, you know, that uh, middle of the year. But it was just very scary as well. Um, so once I understood the elements, then I could put two and two together. Um, and the guilt is gone. Uh, but it took a while because in young when, when I was young um, and... And if it was a misunderstanding or an argument at home between my mom and dad, I was the only person who was able to pull him back. And so because you had of, quite a, a connected relationship then? For some reason, he only listened to me. Not even his own father or, or anybody else. At some point did, but I was, I was probably the, how should I put it, um, the most powerful person around him who was able to draw uh, pull him back on that over on that so you were, a main, you were a main influence in his life mm. yes mm. and knowing that that put a gear to me twice as much because i was always the one who sorted things out right from the start when i was little so knowing that that I'm not at home now, oh, he's fine. Um, according to my mum as well, he was fine. He was just quiet. And why did I not pick up on it? You know, I, uh, so I think it's important that we, we talk about this because it is associated with the guilt. And I don't think that many people want to candidly talk about it um, because of the guilt. Um, so. Can you and are you willing to talk about um, the signs? Hindsight's twenty twenty. So, what are some of the signs that your dad exhibited, or some of the behaviors, or maybe behaviors or not behaving um, in a certain way that um, was normal for him? Um, can you identify what those indicators are now, and and could you share them um, with our listeners because it, you know it could help somebody else. Um, who's listening identify it in in a loved one themselves yeah sure so okay my dad was a hard working man he was mm. also a farmer 
And anybody who knows about suicide and farmers, they know the rates are extremely high as well in 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 in, um, in farmers as well. Oh because, wow! Yeah, because um, I think it's one in every twenty. Um, but I might be wrong on that one. Sorry if it's uh, not correct, but it's one one hundred percent sure is suicide is the leading cause of death in men in the UK under fifty. Yeah. Um, and it gets even higher if if you if you are a farmer because a the weather condition mm. um, that could affect mental health as well a lot and um, your well being itself because uh, obviously the amount of time you could spend on your own as well and also how you start and finish your day start four a.m. Mm. some nights when it's a summer you don't come back home till 10 o'clock in the evening and then you just do it over over again for three four months of period of time it's very isolating work yeah and they only have one day off in every 10 days so it's basically three days off in a month as opposed to eight days minimum in a month so it's a massive difference and then uh, next to it they've got obviously uh, financial worries and that's again a top leading, one of the top leading um, uh, uh, priority and point of why men's actually suicide because they can't provide. So my father very much fall into that um, category as well. And the fact that he came from a very traditional background, we don't talk about feelings, we just work, you go, you strong, push, push, push. And that's all I've seen as well. So although I had a, I had probably out of everybody the, the closest connection with him, but he very much as well was an introvert and worked a lot, too much. That was the downfall. So once he calmed down and, uh, sorry, when he, once the work is, when his work is calmed down, then um, he liked his drinks as well. So okay. that, that had to stop at some point. Because otherwise he could have easily lost his family. It was just unacceptable, unacceptable behavior. And that's when I always came into the picture to calm him down. Okay, so, so he was using alcohol. Correct. Okay. Yes. And uh, we could probably name it and mark it or label it that he, he at some point become an alcoholic because every time, and not every time he had a free time, but most cases he liked his drinks. And unfortunately, right. it's not a problem liking a drink, is what it does to you and what emotions creates against others. So, also, alcohol over long-term use. So if you're abusing alcohol for years and years and years and years, I mean, it contributes to dementia, contributes to loss correct. of brain function, behaviors, all of that stuff. Um, people don't realize or like to acknowledge that it does, it it essentially eats your brain um, and, and, and it changes your personality over yeah. a long period of time if it's being abused. Um, so that is why it is one of the, um, so, you know, one of the signs uh, of, of, of potential suicide, but also one of the um, the factors. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's part of it's just killing brain cells as well. And it's just, it was an ongoing thing for years and years and years, escalated. So at some point it got to the point where we said no more. And he had to go um, for one month or two months in the in a hospital in a clinic to stop this bad habit. Mm-hmm. 
And unfortunately, when he managed to come out from the clinic, the hospital, he had to stop working. So imagine yeah. somebody who is worked 24-7. The only winter was quiet for a farmer. And also he used alcohol. All of a sudden, the two coping mechanisms is being cut off 100%. Right. And all of the energy and time to put into the thing yes. that is the worst for him and his mental health. Because exactly. he no longer has the work. Yeah. Right. And to make matter worse, he was on antidepressants. Mm. So with antidepressants, you either take them regularly and really conscious about it, or you're not taking them. And also when you're coming off from them, you have to be really measured how you're coming off from them as well, because that could be as well dangerous to come one to another. Uh, but it's another story. So he was on antidepressants, and my mom spotted once that he probably didn't take one today because this because my mom was counting um the peers so okay. she always spotted when he was taking it or not so i remember once or twice my mom mentioned that but still nothing clicked all it was strange uh, that was the guilt as well what was difficult for me to enjoy at home to go home with with for peace it was peaceful it was an argument it wasn't butterflies in my stomach what do i go home for now what do I need to do? Do I need to do anything? So it wasn't any disturption, uh, but it was a sign itself because he got really, really quiet and quieter and quieter. So the, yes. he did some jobs around the house, but all of a sudden he became a pensioner from somebody who was, wasn't a full-time worker. He didn't do 40 hours a week. He did probably 60 hours a week. And it was going to black to white. So it's a, such, such an extreme jump and change. Yeah. To top it up, he can't drink. I think sometimes he had like a glass, but he shouldn't have done that one either because of the medication. Right. So all I know, he just got quieter and quieter. And I went and, and he started to sleep in a lot during the day or just watching television. He lost his shape as well. He was in a fantastic physique, tall and muscular, and uh, he started to put on weight as well because obviously a lack of activity. Um, mm -hmm. And he just, he was a shadow of himself. Yeah. He was a shadow of himself. And um, that state, after I finished the secondary school, I was 18. Then after I had a summer holiday, I was sort of home. Then eventually I started a school in um, Capital in Budapest. Then after I had another second uh, summer holiday, and that in uh, 1999, on 1st of June, um, we got to that date. But up until then, it was just silent, quiet, and just peaceful home. Every time I ring my mom, everything is okay, yes. So for me, it was just a relief of, oh, I don't need to worry now. I could move away from home. I don't need to be necessarily at home because my mom is okay as well and there's no arguments. Right. So that hindsight now you realize yeah. that he was working towards ending his own life. And, you know, the... There are signs of suicide ideation um, that are actually listed. Um, 
government websites, et cetera, is probably a good time now because to, to list them out to our listeners so they, they can be equipped with that information to be able to identify it in their own loved ones. Your father, actually, he ticked many of the boxes yes. of, of the signs. So shift in mood. So specifically being even calmer can be cause for alarm. And I think that's one that is missed often because people like you, you thought, oh, he's, he's settled, like he's calmer. I don't have to worry about anything. But the thing is, is in their own mind, they've already made the decision to commit suicide. And that's where the calmness comes from because, you know, the, the chaos in the brain is probably subsided because they've made that decision. Extreme levels of despair and hopelessness about life, talking about researching and writing about death and suicide, saying goodbye to family and friends, withdrawing from family and friends, purchasing something that could be used for suicide, high levels of anxiety or agitation, and excessive use of alcohol and or drug use. Um, so if listeners um, are experiencing any of that with loved ones or friends around them, um, you know, it could be, it could be alarm bells might need to be going off in your brain to, to kind of step in and just check in on them. Um, I want to talk about, because for me, I feel like, and you and I had this conversation actually when we, when we first met and we were having coffee with, with Justin, um, we can't talk about men's suicide without talking about um, toxic masculinity and the ways in which we are raising our sons and the society that we live in. Um, that kind of boys don't cry mentality, man up mentality. Um, and so I, I want to kind of talk about your, maybe even your father's experience as, as a child growing up and, and what that was like to be a boy. But um, one of the things that actually Justin and I talked about on our podcast was very much around um, I'm raising my son to embrace his masculine and his feminine side. Um, because it is a fact, a scientific fact that we are all made up of masculine and the feminine traits. Um, and so to encourage boys to repress the feminine side um, is doing a whole lot of damage and very much contributing to the men's suicide rates as they stand today. Um, so what kind of do you know what your what your father's environment was growing up or or how he was raised? Was that something that, you know, he was told he couldn't cry, that he couldn't, it wasn't normal for him to feel emotions, that even if he did feel them, he was not to express them? Is that? Very likely that, yes. Yeah. I know it was a very traditional um, background, raising, raising um, up children from my father's side. And I know it was pretty much... Uh, if you have a problem, uh, you deal with it and just crack on with life. Mm. So, um, and unfortunately, that cost another life. Um, and that's it. It cost another life. Uh, but I'm referring here for my own godmother, who was my father's sister, who did um, exactly the same thing. Oh, um, oh, thank you. so sorry. So, uh, I think it's it's definitely something I think is very important. If you need to uh, take a minute, Tess, it's okay. Do you need to take a minute? No, it's okay. it's fine. Um, 
is I don't share this story very often, as you could see, but I think that's that's as well like hitting home because it it doesn't matter the gender. We we talk about men's today, obviously, um, because men's, as you mentioned in the intro as well, is is um, their suicidal rates are disproportionately much much higher than females. Uh, bodies everywhere, isn't it? So it goes back to it the is. same thing. If you've grown up in that toxic um, masculinity or femininity uh, environment and you're not being cared of your emotions, you're shutting them down. And, any, and that's part of a sign of depression. And mm. any sign of depression very likely is backed up by a um, World Health Organization as well. It's 20 times more likely you're going to suicide if you're depressed. Yeah. And one in four people, everybody goes through depression. Yes. So that could come from the fact as well, how we actually been influenced by our parents when we're growing up. Are we allowed to express our emotions or not? Are we allowed to be um, uh, having some tears regardless if we are men or a female or a male? Because yeah. unfortunately, we are many men is conditioned by society to believe that they could only be just angry. They're not allowed to be sad. Uh, they're not allowed to feel guilty. They're not allowed to feel shame. They just have to be men. Um, and that's where it goes wrong. So it's not just the parents, it's society as well, isn't yeah. it? But that, I think the only blessing in COVID since the lockdown, that mental health is just really um, stabbed on and, and, and it become a very uh, public topic uh, everywhere and more open. And um, it's something what people actually start to be proud of, that they came out of a very deep point. Right. Um, and I think the publicity publicity of mental health generally as well improving. Uh, but we still need to talk about it and raise awareness. And we need to talk, I think there needs to be some redefinition of what we deem to be strength. So we are living in society and, and that, as you mentioned, post-COVID world, we've taken steps in the direction of embracing um, positive mental health, but we still define strength as repression, like um, repressing your emotions to um, bury things, to um, stiff upper lip and carry on. Um, and we deem embracing your emotions and commute like open communication um, and positively embracing um, our feelings as weakness. And th there needs to be some redefinition that transpires there, especially when we're also talking about um, children and, and people who have experienced traumas in life. Um, one of, you know, one of the main reasons I wanted to launch this podcast um, was to give voice to trauma and give voice to shame and embarrassment, the things that we we hold deep down inside and repress because then it comes out in such, it manifests itself into so many toxic things, suicide being one of them. Um, and there is strength in vocalizing and correctly identifying your feelings, man, woman, 
boy, girl, it doesn't matter. And we need to start redefining the way we think of strength because strength is owning what we all have, which are deeply rooted feelings and emotions. Um, and that's one of the only things that we all have in common. Yeah. It's communication is key. A, to share your emotions. Mm. And the emotions, we could call them vulnerability. And ironically, in my eyes, if somebody's sharing their weakness in front of even one, two, a thousand people, that's yeah. actually one of the biggest strengths you can have. Absolutely. Vulnerability is, an, is completely a superpower. And if you can master being vulnerable, you can conquer many, many very difficult things in life and become, you know, the master of your own ship, really. And to talk it yeah. up with just by share, sorry, but just by sharing that, you create as well a community around it because there mm-hmm. are going to be many, many recognition. Oh, actually, I could relate to that. And those people open up. So word just opens up more uh, more uh, opportunities for people very powerfully hopefully to open up and then therefore um, it could use a prevention I, I couldn't agree more what advice would you give to someone who is struggling with their own mental health or, or having suicidal thoughts um, or even you know somebody who is worried about a loved one around them that they they are identifying that they they are struggling with their mental health what advice would you give to them from a prevention point of view it's a tricky one isn't it because it depends where are they in terms of thoughts so first if it's it's just the beginning of stage when they have the thoughts that's a great opportunity to grab them and open up to somebody somebody who they trust doesn't matter even if it's a cleaner in the gym but uh, but somebody who they could trust and share that thoughts so that so that thought is not carries on and being entertained because soon as you start to be entertained then it's become in the I call it as an amber section and it's a very very dangerous section mm. where you could develop ideas around that thoughts what if if I do it this way that way Right, um, ideas, ideas become actions, and actions have consequences. Correct. So again, I would just refer them again for action, either communication for a friend or a professional, if they're mm. willing to do that. They might open to better for a professional because it's uh, a different setup. So they could be more comfortable and relaxed to open up with a deeper feeling and understanding and reading about it that they are not on their own. So many people have got, I had suicidal thoughts after I lost my father and I'm, I'm not ashamed sharing it. I had several times suicidal thoughts on that initial year, I think a year or two, but I didn't entertain it. So my second suggestion would be think about your loved ones. Because this is what this is what pulled me back. I was thinking about my mom and I think about my brother. Do I actually what put them through it onto that pain again? Uh, mm-hmm. And what would it solve? It is a selfish decision. That person needs to be selfish when it makes the decision to do that. 
because those people are meta and everybody's meta and therefore society should be everybody's business. Uh, number three, I think it's more about community. So when people picking up signs, perhaps of somebody's behaviour, oh, so as so is not as active anymore or started to change in habits or become very uh, quiet and reserved, I would pick up on it and then just force, are you okay? But this this question being said a lot of time, but how are you doing? Tell me more what's happening with you. You're going to be quiet. So we definitely start to get them closer and get a deeper conversation mm. uh, because that's, a, that's, again, another sign of depression. So I think environmental, we need to look after each other and looking at any signs, even people who you know, who don't know. Um, and then looking for um, um, communication, either with a friend or a professional help. And if you do start to entertaining these, those thoughts, just think about how your loved ones or friends would feel around you. Well, I really, I want to applaud you um, for having the courage to admit that you had suicidal thoughts. Um, I'm sure that you're not the only one after experiencing a loss of your, you know, your father committing suicide. I'm sure there's many people who themselves went down that thought process. Um, and you mentioned the word selfish. Um, and I think that they, and that was kind of the, the thing that brought you back from those going and entertaining the suicidal thoughts was, was thinking about your mother and your brother and um, not wanting to be selfish in that way um, by ending your own pain in such, in such a way. Um, it's something that I think, you know, I even saying it out loud, I'm afraid to say it because of, of what the reaction would be maybe from the listeners, but I'm going to say it anyways. And I think I've mentioned this to you, but I do, I do struggle with people's decision to commit suicide. And I know that you're in the depths of despair and that must be such um, an impossible place to sit, but the, the, there it is the most selfish thing you can do. And I, 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 I ask you, you know, because you felt it and you, and you identified the selfishness of it. Are you angry with your father for doing what he did and leaving you, you and your mother and your brother like that? Uh, not anymore. Not anymore. I was, um, maybe we could call it angry, angry with him or angry with myself. Mm. Um, but uh, I just break it down what happened to his head, what I think it could happen to his head, and I understand. Uh, however, um, he made that decision now, and I accepted it. Um, so was my mum and my brother, and I think having that connection between the three of us and and not you know carrying the past and the burden anymore uh, mm. just moving on that helps a lot because the thing is you do have to respect regardless is a selfish decision uh, I think you do have to respect that person because it's an invisible disease mm. we can't see it that person is poor is is poorly mentally and if you would see somebody with a broken leg we would straight away oh are you okay how are you getting on 
but we don't see that. So therefore, we can't keep go back and check up on the person. We could also just make actions and proaction on behaviors and behavior changes. Mm. So you've decided to channel your um, your pain and your experience um, with suicide. And as you mentioned, it's not just your father who who has committed suicide. You have several loved ones. Um, can you? Talk up a little bit about the men talk that you've recently launched um, and the 312 challenge that you're doing um, to honor your father and the loved ones that you've lost to suicide. Yes, uh, quite exciting, really. Uh, so this year, it's put a smile on my face because it's <laughs> something we're spinning this deep topic into something really positive. I'm yes. sure at the time it's going to be very emotional, mm-hmm. but I've got a great team and a great support network around me who is supporting this idea. And honestly, I can't thank enough. Um, so it is going to take place um, in end of July, close to my father's birthday. And it's going to be a 24 hours challenge. In this 24 hours, I'm planning <laughs> to lift 312 kilogram in total lift. <laughs> Means what? bench and deadlift so the three lift total has to add up for 312 maybe more Um, then after a certain amount of time recovery uh, I'm going to swim in a swimming pool 312 length so length is 25 meter and after I'm going to recover and probably 10 of us the team is still expanding maybe 10, 15 of us who is going to join me. We're going to go for a bike ride to the lakes and back, which that distance there and back should be 305 kilometres, starting from Whitefield. Um, And this is in all 24 hours. And to aim to help suicide prevention um, and men's suicide as well, uh, to have that cause to raise awareness and uh, raise hopefully £31,200 or more. Okay, so why the three, why the 312? Why the 312 number? So, <laughs> yeah, this this is actually a, um, it's, it's a nice uh, little twist on it. So I asked my mum, um, what was my father's favourite place? Is there any place in the world he wanted to go? And um, she said a city back in Hungary. So what we did, because I said to my mum, I would like to do something this year, but I don't know what. I know it's going to affect me, but I would like to really make a twist on it and make it something positive. So this is how our idea started to develop, really. So my mom told me that name of the what was the name of the city. We googled the distance from the home where I was um, uh, um, grown up, and and uh, it was three hundred and five kilometers. Okay. And my mom suggested to cycle, and then I looked up different challenges. There is actually a three hundred and twelve k challenge in the in the world. I think it's in Spain. But I didn't want it to fly to Spain. I wanted to stay local where I am. And yeah. in Hungary, always say three times lucky, third time lucky. 
So this is why it's the three different stages of the challenge to make it big enough. And hopefully that will be enough to to show people um, um, and hopefully people give me enough uh, amount of funds to able to raise the amount of money to, to, to support suicide prevention. Perfect. Okay, so where can people donate? Uh, on my Just Giving page, uh, which I'm going to um, uh, attach in uh, to my Instagram page and in my LinkedIn page and also in Facebook. Okay, wonderful. Well, I'll include that in the um, episode description so people can can click on it, find more information and donate Thank if they you wish. so much. So Tess, um, I really want to applaud you. I really want to thank you. Um, for being candid, for sharing your story, for also talking about your own struggle with mental health and suicide. Um, And I finished every episode asking my guests the same question. Um, So I'm going to pose the question to you. Was there ever a time where you didn't speak up and out about something that you witnessed or experienced and wish you did? What was it and why? I think it just goes back to what we talked about. I think the last time when I saw my dad, because it was two weeks after I found out. So um, so I saw him in the middle of May. And if i able to go back in time, and on that last time when I saw him, I could just ask deeper, how is he? Mm. I would love to do that. Regardless, I accept his decision, but I would love to go back. And just ask, are you okay? Are you sure you're okay? Ask more questions. Ask more questions. Yeah. I'm very sorry for, for your loss and or your losses, I should say, because you, you, suicide has um, impacted you with various different members of your family. So um, I'm very sorry for those losses. And um, I applaud the work that you're doing. And um, I encourage all my listeners to to donate. If they can, they can find the link to donate um, on the description of this episode. Um, So thank you so much, Tess, for being here. And I wish you so much luck um, with your endeavors around men talk um, and raising awareness around men's suicide. So thank you so much for the work that you're doing. It's important. Thank you so much for the opportunity. And just to say, I know I've lost my father, but his loss is not going to be wasted because I could put it towards this great cause which I'm really passionate about. You're very inspirational and that just gave me the chills. So thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Why Are We Whispering podcast. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening and leave a review. You can also follow us on Instagram at Why Whisper Podcast. And don't forget to speak up and out. Let's stop whispering.